2: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books network. I'm Craig Savello, host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Victoria De Grazia about her excellent new book, The Perfect Fascist: A Story of Love, Power, and Morality in Mussolini's Italy. Victoria, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. It's it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. Yeah. Very happy to uh, <laughs> Um, Victoria, we always like to begin our interviews by asking the author to tell us a little bit about themselves.
0: Fine. Let me start with my uh, position, that is, I'm professor of history at Columbia University, where I've taught for practically 25 years, just 25 years. Before that, I taught at Rutgers, uh, the State University of New Jersey. And I'm an historian of contemporary European history, uh, which is to say that I was originally trained, or my original enthusiasm uh, and training was Italian history. But the way we did Italian history in in those days, this is now the 1970s, was uh, in a comparative way. So. From the get go, I was thinking about Italy and how it was different and the same uh, uh, with respect to uh, other European countries, a a comparative approach. And I think I'll come back to that when I talk about the book. So it turned out I did study at Columbia University, but first I studied uh, at the University of Florence. And so uh, my training uh, was. In many ways, unusual at least for professors uh, uh, in those days. That that is, it was almost a bi-continental uh, training. I, I learned a huge amount about Italy, but especially about fascism, which is the subject of this book, uh, in Italy. And when I came back to the United States, at studying at Columbia, I studied with Fritz Stern, uh, a German historian. Many of you. Uh, Work might be familiar with, but also Arno Mayer, who was at Princeton, but was then teaching as well at Columbia University. So I was studying. And if you want, my interest was very quickly political interest. What is fascism? What are all these fascists doing? I called everybody fascists in those days, in you know, the late sixties or seventies. And you know, I began this sort of this this deep interest uh, in. Uh, What fascism was, but thinking about how to write about it. I think that was my very initial instinct that it was very hard to grasp it in the abstract, though we debated lots of typologies and comparisons. Uh, So, my original work, my thesis, as they, you know, we start with our theses, was on the fascist leisure time organization. And that sounds so oh, jolly, jolly fun. But it, in Ita- Italy, it was called the After Work Organization. And uh, I the fascists had set it up to mobilize and to police worker leisure time activities after they destroyed the free unions. So it was pretty clear my first approach to fascism uh, was to understand... What its effects were, how it related to groups was trying to uh, police, to control, to destroy in original form. So first I studied workers in these organizations, these giant organizations, which picked up all lots of these associations, which they had snatched, stolen uh, from the left-wing organizations. And then I studied uh, the history of women under fascism. Uh uh, in another book, but then I think it was also I was always fascinated by the relationship between force and seduction. That's kind of you know you could get some weird psychoanalytic uh, you know considerations why I was so interested in power and how it's seductive and how it uses force. That sort of relationship between force and consensus, or soft and how hard power. So. After I did those kinds of works, I became very interested in consumer culture, which in the 1980s was the subject of a lot of interest for historians for the first time. Again, the question is: Is this something that's a kind of imperialism in daily life, or is this a kind of seduction, or is this a real human need? So. Let's not you know, be so uh, mean and ideological about it. And on that basis, I did a lot of work about women and consumption with with colleagues. And then I did a whole huge book that took me quite a long time uh, on called Irresistible Empire, which was about how the United States used, was sort of the primary, the first consumer uh, society, and it used us as, as a way of, organize its soft power globally uh, in the period of the 20th century. Uh, Come back to that question, how I ended that book um, later. Uh, But it was a a very engaging work, which took me away from thinking about how fascism operates uh, in using seduction and force to, frankly, thinking about how American empire uh, had uh, operated over the 20th century in a, we say, a liberal democratic uh, model using force and a consensus. Obviously, with a very different kind of balance. So, that's uh, if you want my my background. I have an Italian last name, as you can tell. I learned Italian in Italy. You know, going there first with my family. Last year of high school, dropped out of high school, never got. A high school degree because it was very exciting to you know, wander around Europe. And then I began to, you know, focus on it, college, Smith College. Then I had a Fulbright. And so gradually this, you know, so I began to see you know, maybe half of my world through Italian high. So it's a very exciting time. Many, many young people in the 60s, Americans were very mobile then, running away from their families and the United States and, and going out. Either Latin America or or or, or to, to, to Europe, but that uh, angle, uh, you know, being close to European politics, especially student politics in the '60s and '70s, uh, it provided a very interesting kind of counterpoint to seeing the world and, and politics through, let's say, American eyes. Uh, you know, the kind of diff- different rhythm. And, and also, with lots of connections then to scholars and activists in Germany and, and in France. Okay. Uh, so, that, then, if you want, is is, is sort of my, my training, also, you know, you can sort of set sort of emotional, intellectual <laughs> breadth. Uh, and, you know, if you want, my trajectory, which lies behind what could be. Speaking about today, which is my most recent book called *The Perfect Fascist*, uh, uh, as, as Craig has uh, told you, which I you know, study of, um, you know, of love uh, and uh, uh, power, and uh, last but not least, uh, morality. And you know, we'll, we'll talk more about some of the themes of that book.
2: Yes, uh, and it is clear that you have spent a career. Um, working on thinking about fascism. Um, so is this book um, more of a culmination of, of of you know decades of thinking about fascism? Was this a book that you intended to write um, at some point and now you're just getting around to it? Or was this something that sort of, you knew you were in, obviously interested in fascism, but the, the actual topic of the book sort of came to you later? Well, thank
0: you. That's a wonderful question. I didn't really think I would be writing about fascism again, that uh, I had a very strong sort of mean feeling that I wanted to nail a fascist or nail, you know, one of these new right figures who are coming up in the 1990s. You know, I thought, you know, of course, of, of, of Silvio Berlusconi, uh, in a, you know, in, in Italy. I said, you know, how do he, where does he get his power from? Okay. He's a corporate giant. He was a very uh, you know brilliant entrepreneur using all sorts of scams, and that he then created this whole new movement, whole cloth new movement. You know, go Italy after the soccer, you know, you know, uh, soccer slogan in the nineteen nineties when that kind of politics was supposed to go have gone away. So in the nineteen nineties, began to see all these new strongmen um, appear. You know, cropping up uh, as the old political system broke down after the end of the Soviet Union. After 1990, the old left and right Kind of uh, centrist politics, which the Americans we all used to say had been the great acquisition after the end of Nazi fascism in 1945. Clearly, they broke down. There was no longer that clear, you know, Catholics and centrists in the middle, and the left socialists and maybe a few communists on the left, and some sort of you know usually liberal Democrat, slightly rightist kind of movement. All of a sudden, there were these new. You know, what we now call you know, populism, whatever whatever that that meant. So I was very excited about. i mean excited in. And- angry way and said, Oh, you know, I want to nail one. And you know, at one point I was with a colleague at Columbia we said we've gotta make a film about Berlusconi and when they everybody sees how ugly he is, you know, it'll break his it'll break his charm. And we couldn't find any photographs that showed him ugly because it's almost the nature of these strong men to somehow look good and powerful and in 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 the images though uh there are some exceptions to that. If they're photographed a lot, so I was keenly aware that there was something that's new, but I really said, I you know I can't devote myself to something so um, strange. In any case, I was this this other book, *Rise Still Empire*, was was being finished. It didn't really get finished. And, you know, t- thousand five, and it, what happens sometimes is when you finish a huge work like that was that irresistible, which went all over the place. And it's long and very involving for quite a time. Uh, you're very lonely. <laughs> I mean, it's a kind of space, and just at in that moment, it was like getting a new <clears throat> friend, uh, a woman, a very uh, New York. A uh, Jewish, uh, a woman who uh, was an amateur historian, trained at Radcliffe, and she got in touch through her, uh, one of her children, who was at knew people at Rutgers, a prof- her son, a professor, and said, you know, she had some very interesting papers of her so, a distant cousin, who was married to a big fascist, um, and she was an opera singer, and you know, so the question, so she. I Invited me over, and there were these bags. I think they were Bloomingdale bags. They were just sacks. Of not very many, four or five, if, if that. And they said, you know, we know that she separated, and was it anti-Semitism? And why would she have married this big fascist with a big ugly beard and so much older? Was it her father? You know that. So, so there was that that human question, uh, very simple that you would ask about your relatives. Uh, and I was interested, especially once I put my hands into the bags. And you know, for all of you out there, and this is what we call serendipity. You know, sometimes historians like I begin with big problems and say, okay, how am I going to document those big problems? And others, you know, oh, I found the most amazing font in the archive, or I discovered something. Well, this is a case of, shall we say, of discovery, but of things that I could recognize at least instantaneously. So I put in and pulled out the wedding album from 1925, 1926, excuse me. And there, who is the best man standing there right in the middle? Benito Mussolini. So I thought, my goodness, Benito Mussolini is the, you know, the best man at this wedding? And there in the background there was the ambassador, Fletcher, from the United States, American ambassador. He was also a witness, and then looking at this other little man there peeking out very, very charming. Oh, it's Tullio Serafine, who's the director of, Les, of La Scala, and at that point was the director of the Metropolitan uh, Opera Company, the successor to Toscanini. I said, that's quite a set of best men and witnesses. So what's going on here? And then second in this Bags, there was a whole bunch of photographs showing battles battle marches in Libya, and it showed this fascist on his horse and, uh, you know, the they long kind of caravan of Italian colonial soldiers with these surrender ceremonies of these sheikhs uh, in the, in the south of Benghazi, uh, uh, near the oasis, even going further down. Uh, toward uh, 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 the furthest south of the of, of the Libya, which then you know, near, near this near this, this Sudan, I said, "My goodness, well, 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 that really interests me. Colonialism and and all these military pictures. I've never seen any set like them. And then third, and I'll stop you because you know I was my this point, my blood was starting to, Ooh, you know, I mean, really. This is uh, this is pretty interesting stuff." The the um, there was all of these uh, bound books which were annulment trial records, and those are secret records church keeps. And the woman happened to have a copy of it, including a letter, a long letter that the husband had written, breaking off the marriage, uh, s- saying that she had had some wild love affair uh, with uh, with her manager. So these three very different. Documents, you know, again, they started making me think. Oh, this is an interesting story. This could be an opera. (laughs) Said to (laughs) myself, you know, I can see it right now. Three acts. Oh, hey, maybe Verdi, five acts. I'll write it up right away. This is this is you know this is easy, an easy story, but. Almost immediately I said, well, you know, really, what is this about? Is it about the old story of the American girl like Henry James or Edith Wharton who goes to Europe and is corrupted by the dark, you know, sinister fascists? So a kind of update on these fin de American novels about the ingenue who gets corrupted and then what's going to happen? Um, or is this about... Uh, and that, uh, the Jewish girl, another another story. Ah, you know, ha ha, there she is. You know, you know, but she should be afraid of anti-Semitism, and instead, zero. You know, or you know, why has she been um take up with this fascist? And then why does he get rid of her? And what does that have to do with the story of anti-Semitism in Italy, uh, which is a Know, the story, which is gradually being updated. We can come back to that question. I think that Craig, you might have some points, questions about that because of your own interests in in German history. And then the question is, well, what kind of fascist was this man? Because there were all kinds of fascists. There were functionary fascists who were, you know, part of the high old, um, you know, liberal. Um, National conservative elite gentlemen. Uh, there were extremely violent fascists who were you know, basic, your basic thugs. Uh, there were military fascists who came out of the army and you know, became the leaders of, of the squads. Mussolini. Many came from the far left and had been revolutionaries. Mussolini and his immediate cohort. So then that big question became: well, What? what kind of person was this? Was he a good guy? Was he actually violent? A good guy in the sense of, you know, a, a smoothie type? Um, who was he? And then it turned out, again, this is, for me, is not enough to, to make me push forward. There was nothing written on this man. Um, and I thought, oh, that is interesting. At least I won't say that that made me interested in him. I'm not a biographer. Back to that. But, um, more interested in society and people's relations with one another. But there didn't seem to be much material on him. He himself had no records, as it turned out. And he just seemed to be turning up everywhere in the photographs. And there was very little written about him. So I had to keep digging and digging and digging. And in the process of digging, 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 I began to see the fascist period with different eyes. That's, you know, different eyes I'd never worked. Uh, with the hierarchs, that is, these leading guys. Uh, it turned out he was very close to Mussolini. Certain dimensions of him began to become interesting, and, and especially if you want his moral profile. What, what was this guy going and marrying this innocent? And she was innocent. I mean, she was very opportunistic, but she was ingenuous. we so say, ingenuous, marrying this woman who was, you know, 26, 27, opera singer, very talented Jewish. So why did he marry her? And that's the kind of the question that began to, to drive uh, this. So, so it was like one of those questions you would ask in a novel. You know, what, Who is this man and why? You know, he's on the move, on the make. What, what's driving him? And And how can we use him to understand better the regime he's in, the dictatorship, how can we understand the dictatorship to understand about him, you know, as as a figure uh, who seems to be come back to that representing you know, a, a certain kind of Italy and how that Italy became so engaged with the fascist regime? It turned out in brief. Okay, I have started the origin story in, yeah. in that um, you know he 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 represents um, some. We could tell a good story about it, which I hope I've done.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's also very important to tell our listeners that th- this book, although has very compelling characters, and I, my next question is going to be mm-hmm. about the characters themselves. But th- this book is not a biography of these characters. This um, this book, as you've described it, is sort of a social history of fascism in Italy. Um, and, and I'm interested to talk about your approach. Right. Um, but before we, we dig, dig into your approach, let, let's just, you, you've, let's just talk about the characters just in sort of their most, uh, <laughs> sort of brief biographical form. Okay. Um, you have, um, just for those who will hopefully go out and read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of names in it, but there are, there are three big ones. <laughs> um, um, Taruzi,
0: mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. um, the sort of the main character, the fascist, um, and and then the two women, Liliana uh, Weinman and mm-hmm. um, Yvette Blank.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you put them that way. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a it, it's not a triangle. Um, no. uh, okay. Let's start with um, Attilio Teruzzi. That's Teruzzi. That would be mm-hmm. so. It's a double. He he's a soldier. Uh, he's a colonial soldier. Uh, he's born the same year as Mussolini. That's 1882. That means they're, they're all about 18 years old in 1900. And that makes them pretty angry. <laughs> I mean, it's a harsh yeah. time in Italy, a lot of unemployment, uh, a lot of revolutionary zeal. And uh, he doesn't have m- – he's from the a widow, you know, problem with widow, widowed mother, and he joins the colonial army, which is a big step. Somebody from his sort of middling, lower middling class, Milan, and also that's peculiar, Milan, usually they go into commerce, or they emigrated. That was very common, Mussolini and others also emigrated. So rather than emigrating, he clearly had a, you know, physical courage, and it was like going into the foreign legion. So let's think of him going, and for 20 years, he's a soldier. And that's that's a very, very important. Not only is he a soldier, but this is something you have to sort of go with uh, as you, uh, you know, go, went, looked at the military records, very hard to get a hold of. That turned out he went to the Italian equivalent of West Point. He had to win to get in. So he's not super smart, but he's knows how to, he knows how his numbers, commerce and Milan. And that gives him a kind of an interesting profile. He's a guy on the move. I mean, since his family, his sister is a schoolteacher, so you know, you, you you see him as that striver, that 19th century striver, you know, going someplace. The little guy, he's on the move, and he is a hero. He's a war hero. He gets wounded. He's by the end of World War One, he's had three silver medals and under fire. Under fire, no question about it and he's also become the adjutant that is the aide de camp of a very important general whose name you won't know you'll know it after you read the book and it's amazing all these fascinating people in italy you won't know their name but boy are they they're, they're important people very important people in the history of italy and th- th- so so this is this guy's 20 years a good soldier and then you will see in the book 20 years a very good fascist <laughs> so that's the yeah, the, the the kind of uh, figure we're dealing with now, Liliana Wyman, Hey, she went to Hunter High School. Her parents were immigrants. The father oh, was just working all the time to cultivate her great talent as a as a musician, as a as a singer. Uh, she goes to Italy to study, uh, backed by uh, her mentors around the Metropolitan Opera with this ideal, the deal that after three years, four years, she'll come back and make her debut in the Met. So she's a piece of American work, if you want. Uh, opportunist, talented, very, uh, very uh, hardworking. And so the big question is, why does she get seduced and abandon her career thinking, you know, right? And then the question is, why, when the marriage breaks up, does she fight it? For ever and ever and ever, you know, to prevent uh, a divorce, uh, and much less an annulment—a church annulment, which dissolves a marriage. Okay, now why well, does have the third person? And I, if this were an opera, she would be uh, uh, the, the light soprano. You should be like Michaela and Carmen. Uh, she is also a Jewish woman, but coming from Cairo and an orphan. And she appears on the scene in thirty-six, and she her name is Yvette Blanc, and she's of French culture, as many Romanian Jews were living in 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 the Egypt. And she has a child uh, by Tiruzzi, who can't marry her. Uh, and so that's the third part. Now, this is all interwoven with you know every you know good and bad. F- Fascists—I mean, good and bad—fascists of all stripes are within it because I think of it as a social history of people, social history of individuals who can't be understood as individuals but only in connection with one another. Uh, And uh, so, those are um, the three major figures uh, who—you know—the first two wind their way all the way through; the event comes on the scene, in the last part of the book. if She's Jewish, race laws. He's a minister of Africa. They have a child who, might, according to the Jewish laws, is Jewish. You can imagine that there is a lot of trouble uh, once the uh, Italy comes under German tutelage and then under German occupation after 1943.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it
2: very nicely explained to us the characters and they are complicated and that, that definitely comes through the book. Um, so explain to us your approach, this sort of using their story mm-hmm. sort of to tell this social history mm-hmm. of fascist Italy in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it, it's very unique and um, I'll, I'll let you flesh it out and I'll yeah. ask some follow-ups. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, thanks. Thanks, Greg. Because, you know, I, myself had never I, I thought a lot in my later work on the importance of giving strong cameos, if I, you know, could, as an historian. It's not simple. I'm not a biographer, social historian. I'm very interested in social relations and commercial relations, you know, relations of all sorts. Mm-hmm. So for me to spell out how characters evolve is not so simple. Uh, and especially a, a man uh, who uh, subjectivity is extremely cramped, to say the least. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, his emotional band is is very very narrow. And then the one protagonist, uh, Liliane, we do have her letters, but Yvette Black, very very little. You know, mainly comes through photographs, a few letters, interviews with a surviving granddaughter lives in Naples. But let's say the method was this way, that because I know how I'm interested in contextualizing, I would pick up moves, let's say, or a question. I'd start with a question. Well, is Teruzzi a violent man? And I said, 38 years old. He's 38 years old. That seems to be pretty old to be one of those squadristi running around with a big iron bar and, uh, and castor oil giving purges to socialists. I, so my, my, my question is, is that possible that he would be one of these guys who's actually beating people up with iron and and leading squads, burning down places? So at that point, at, at you know at that point, and then I had to go back and read a lot about the violence because even though we talk about the violence a lot, actually the records are of the encounters are not strong. They were written up by socialists, by Matteo, Giacomo Mattiotti, the socialist uh uh deputies and killed by the fascists in terrible, brutal murder in 1924. He did a big uh, inquiry. But it's sort of like, you know, Charlottesburg, these events in the United States where you know violence happened, but then it spread around. And you get it, you get it, you get it on the newspaper, and then it disappears. And you, it's hard to count them up and to know exactly what happened because the police could give one account, the fascists would give another account, uh, the socialists gave another account, the liberal press would sort of you know go back and forth and then by the end of 1921 or so it was swinging around usually to give some combination of the police report and the fascist report which were more and more concurring. So now we could digitalize things are digitalized, I could start looking up Trutzy here and there and by god I found him you know leading uh it during the elections um you know they said oh uh, the police would call in that there's Uh, You know, the the Reds are having uh, an electoral meeting uh, and he would send a a truck out to see what they were doing. The truck would provoke the the socialists by tearing down their red flag. Uh, He would then call the quest or the official police and they'd all jump into trucks and out they'd go to see if there were any arms because arms were illegal. And then, oh, lo and behold, a shootout. Thank you. Did the socialists have guns? No, they had rocks and they had you know, a few things. And then they would just tear up the whole town. And there I found him. Uh, you know, the that kind of incident, uh, which was he, he would even admit to saying, you know, we helped the police. We helped the police break up that mob, uh, who, which were preventing us from electioneering properly. And so he began to get really down to the nitty gritty that come, come election time, 19, uh 21 which was the first time the fascists were brought into the liberal conservative bloc so the fascists were running for the first time as part of the national front with conservatives and liberals you know, invited in to try to calm them like they were you know as if as if the Democratic Party invited in the tea party or something like that you know that would be you know they. The Republican Party right, inviting you to the Tea Party and saying, OK, now we're going to cool you down and you're going to become normal legislators. Well, at that point, they really begin to use a huge amount of violence in the electioneering and they win a big chunk of votes. And so that's really the beginning of a huge surge in their popularity. So just to go back, you asked, well, what's the method? It's not that. It's not like a biography where I say, oh, gosh, I'm just so excited by his story. Really, I want to see him in some ways as part of this larger story. And by finding out specifically what this major did, you know, a major in the army, he would never violate the law. I mean, you know, he would have never violated the law in 1920. He would have never joined the fascist party. He couldn't because he's a military guy. So you see this military guy moving with considerable rapidity, several months to becoming the head of organizing the Milanese squads, saying, oh, we have to organize them, otherwise they'll behave illegally, and using his medals and his knowledge of the local police to begin to align the police with the fascist squads to uh, provide so-called security against the Reds, with big capital R-E-D-S, which usually just meant these reformist socialists because they... They weren't communists. They were sort of just defending their territory um, from these from these fascist incursions. So that was a kind of method I use of having to kind of say, "What did the guy do?" Big question. Or why do I even care? What do, What What's the question here? And then uh, trying to dig, dig, dig to find out the specifics uh, in the context. You could see that.
2: Um, just to ask a sort of more, maybe not a trivial question, but a, a smaller question about him. Did he have a like a, a moment in which he became a fascist? Or did he sort of lean that way uh, anyway, and it was an easy transition? Or did he have some sort of event, maybe some war experience or something that changed his no,
0: what he, the, Again, that's, a, so, you know, that's such a good question, because I can't <laughs> asking that, asking it. So the... Uh, it, he, as a major, a major captains and and, and many uh, uh, volunteers uh, students, they shifted over almost ideologically pretty quickly to be anti uh, anti fascist. So so there's a lot of veterans that joined the squads, uh, but. Because he's a major, that, that's already you know the top of the uh, of, of the the, the officer uh, ranks. Those involved with the um, enlisted men. So it was a big catch for the fascists. And now he's in Milan when he comes home from the from from the colonies from the war, where he headed a a big garrison of of colonial soldiers, uh, of uh, Eritrean Libyan soldiers. And he comes back, and you know he doesn't have a job, and 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 they're picking around about pensions, and he's really he's really upset. Everybody's insulting him because he's an officer. It's a lot of um, you know we're familiar with from the Vietnam War veterans coming home, and apparently a, a man a well known well known second rate third rate writer whom he knows is going over to meet Mussolini about some some question. Mussolini's a journalist then he's the head of the fascio, and he brings him along, and so it's a personal introduction, and Mussolini according to the story, he says, Well, Major, when you're settled, come back and see us. We're gonna need people like you. And it's probably two months later when the socialists rewin the elections that so many volunteers show up at the Fasci, fasci organizations and say, Hey, how can we help? And he immediately sets to organizing squads. You know, that's what he did. that's what he that's what he he was a specialist at organizing logistics, organizing, uh, you know, captains, organizing lieutenants, shaping, shaping people up. And the first time he appears in Milan public is at a big, huge funeral where he organizes 2,000 fascists, all beautifully groomed, many, you know, with all the flags, utterly silent. They cut into the parade line where hundreds of thousands of Milanese are out because it was an anarchist bombing at the theater and, you know, by the end of the parade, people were saying, oh, gosh, these fascists are so beautiful and so kindly. And, you know, the little old ladies are saying, you know, beautiful young men, you know, they're not subversives like we thought. You know, they're they're regular guys. So that was Teruzzi's sort of role where, he, you know, great showman. a great showman you know, knows how to turn out the troops and then also very violent, very, very violent. So this disorder, disorder, disorder. He's a man of order and he's a man of disorder all the way through, right to the very end.
2: Yeah, this, this sort of leads me into to a question I had down the road, but I'll, I'll go ahead and ask it now. Um, you talk in the book about this sort of fascist concept, Mussolini's concept, I should say, of the new man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you can first explain that concept to us a little bit, mm-hmm. and then and then we'll discuss how he, Taruzzi, fits mm-hmm. into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the, um, the example you just gave about organizing the parades and how the men all look and everything is, is going to be a great example of this, which is why I'm mm-hmm. pushing it up a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, now, um, The idea that of, of a fascist new man was a very popular idea. Now, you know, if you press it. Everybody was talking about new men and new man. There was a communist new man, the socialist new man, the the fascist new man. I'm not sure if there's a New Deal new man, but certainly by the end of the war... People were talking about the new man, you know, how to, and that was something that was also so big in the late 19th century, where you know, as the Enlightenment idea of the rational man begins to collapse, and there's so much colonial imperialist fever, and Nietzsche's coming around, you know, and saying, hey, there's this we've got to have this sort of ideal blonde hero who shows that we're not all you know Jewish, uh, Christian slaves to our moral of women suffragettes and socialists and so on and so forth. So there's a great disquiet about what is a man uh, by the, the beginning of the 20th century, very widespread, you see it in novels. So Mussolini is in some ways a variant on that. And his idea, you know, it comes out a little of Machiavelli. You know, the prince should have this utter cunning and be sort of half man and half beast with his, his intuitions, like the mm. centaur. But he's also saying, hey, Nietzsche, we've got to fight uh, because, I'm. excuse me, Nietzsche, I'm sorry, Darwin, we have to fight our way because we're masses, they're herds, and so the man has to stand above the herd in order to survive. Now, there are all these ideas boiling around. And so I don't. I really take a, a not stand. I mean, a stand saying that the idea of the new man is not that interesting because it was very contradictory, and that was poor Tarutzi's. If you want poor Taruzzi's tragedy or tragic comedy, that no matter how hard he was going to try to be the perfect fascist, uh, it's not clear what is the perfect fascist. You know, is it the uh, intellectual who turns out marvelous legislation on the Jews, like Botai, who is usually considered to be a good man. Except, uh, or is it the most violent fascist, like a Fadinacci who manages to do these huge organizations and leads, uh, you know, the, the entire area of Lombardy and puts them into the fascists, sort of the second Duce to Mussolini. Uh, is it, uh, you know, something, somebody much more more conservative and. You know, Taruzzi's problem really is, you know, part, part of it is reflected very much in how he chooses his women companionship. I mean, you, you, how, how, do you, how do you secure your position? It's a huge problem. So, so the, the notion of a perfect fascist is kind of a paradoxical kind of idea, if you, if you want. Hmm. And uh, Mussolini basically the new man, it was sort of different, different strokes for different folks. You know, the masses should be fertile, obedient, and good soldiers, and then your cadres should be utterly obedient, and then your, you know, what, your intellectuals should be, you know, kind of caustic and 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 interesting, but not too interesting, not too critical. And then a Teruzzi, who was his sort of right-hand person, he had to be utterly stalwart, you know, and uh, you know, be a yes man, in, 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 even if it meant uh, defiling what what he held most dear. Just
2: what she was definitely a yes man. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I mean they're yes men and yes men, and he's he, yeah. he really stretched
2: it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I definitely do not want to neglect um, Liliana. Um, <laughs> so I let, let's talk about her for a little bit. Um, she first of all, what, what does she see in him? What, 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 what is her motivation to, uh, because I, I was fascinated by this really from the very beginning. She had, she was this very talented person um, who sort of gives it up for a middle-aged fascist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, mm-hmm. uh,
0: cool. well, you know, it's one of these questions that I'm not even sure historians are that good at at, at pondering. I, I think I think one could give you know various kinds of, of answers to to that. I again was always asking that question. Well, I disbelieved that she was fascist for for quite a while, and then it was pretty clear when I went back and and. You know, every every everything was there, and so many women, women of the middle class in Italy, were you know were enthusiastic. At least in 1925, 1926, they were very enthusiastic Those the promises of the women were getting the vote. You know, things were getting shaken up. Um, their their mates, their their schoolmates, their brothers were, if they were from the middle upper middle classes, were were involved. They were deeply anti socialists. So women, no no question, of a certain class were – and she, being Jewish, was also um, influenced by meeting Mussolini's lover and uh, mentor, a very prominent uh, woman, Margherita Sarfatti. And Teruzzi, too, was smitten by the idea that he had in this Liliana. An equivalent to Sarfati, a wealthy, very intelligent, and very talented woman and in, in Milan. And the Milanese women were not, you know, were, were very strongly engaged in the arts and in philanthropy. So it, it, I am always reflecting. I did previous work on women under into fascism that, that, that her behavior is not inconsistent. Uh, what is outrageous is that the marriage then, you know, Breaks up and so on, and and that's, uh, but I, I'm not I'm not sure almost that I wouldn't want to leave it to readers and especially young young readers to to, to debate and to discuss you know is this the eternal woman who, <laughs> who marries and then protects you know the the, the bad man um, is this somebody who simply didn't get it uh, you know couldn't understand. Italian, European politics. She brought a very strong American notion of marrying up into the inner circle. Can you imagine an inner circle in Italy? That's under a dictatorship, you know, <laughs> she's like, you know. Everything in the state, nothing outside the state, there ain't no inner circles there. Mussolini would toss and play, and this and that. There, She was married when women were still playing a big role in the 1920s, and then there's a, quite a big shift in the 1930s where Salon life and all of that—you know—the the women's role is, is pushed to the side as it becomes a much more bureaucratic, male hierarchical or organized society. So, I guess I don't almost don't want to pin her down. Maybe because there is a lot that one can't really know about her her subjectivity, uh, and uh, but she does sometimes. Maybe one could argue stand in for America's role, <laughs> you know, as a metaphor of you know a kind of American approval and disapproval and you know utter disdain by the nineteen forties in the war. is yeah, a piece yeah. of work. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a perfectly uh, fine answer to say to people: uh, go read the book and and you you guys discuss it and figure it out. Right. Um, yeah, no, I think and it's a great. Sure, way it's it.
0: very sensitive, clearly, but again, you know that, that she's Jewish, and that makes for a, a, a different kind of story. Not not that you know, uh, my colleague Al- Alexander Stilla wrote a beautiful book called "Benevolence and Betrayal" many years ago about the, the, the engagement of J- prominent Jewish families with the fascist regime and their their horror and disappointment when they and margarita sarfati too in 1938 jewish laws and all of a sudden she discovers she's jewish and she says i'm not really jewish you know we've converted and my son married a, a catholic girl and so on and why do i have to leave and you know why can't i have maids anymore because they prevented the laws prevented jewish families from having christian maids lest they're religiosity be impaired by their Jewish um, you know, masters and mistresses.
2: Um, one of the things I, I definitely wanted to discuss, and, and one of the most fascinating parts of your book, is that you really highlight the sort of conflicts that exist in, 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 in fascist Italy. And I imagine you could extrapolate this out to other, to other dictatorships as well, but sort of conflicts between church and state. Uh, conflicts between conservative society but they were a conservative society but they were a revolutionary society um, you know public and private how those definitions change um, and not only do they change but they they change suddenly and they um, they sort of change over and over again um, if you could talk to us about fascist society and, 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 and the, and how your characters fit into these uh, particularly maybe the church and state one, because, um, you know, with the whole marriage annulment thing, um, how does this story tell us a larger story about these conflicts in fascist Italy?
0: Right. One point of departure I I had was the, the, uh, fascinating liberal interpretation, which had been represented maybe most eloquently and perhaps in such a misunderstood way, excuse me, by Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism. And in that work, which is written very, you know, 1949, published, I think, about 1951, she uh, really is thinking very much about Nazi Germany, but then she pushes the Soviet Union into divine totalitarianism and wants to leave Italy out as something different. But I say that that's not quite fair. You know, you can't choose, they can choose like that. But her main point is under, in, under totalitarianism is that civil society, that is, the, the sphere of the individual collapses. Into the oneness of the leader, and in effect, it disappears. And that was uh, a notion that she had, you know, coming out of uh, the the, you know the the the, the Nazi period, in contact coming to the United States, and then it's one very much reinforced in American social science, which says that if you've got nice. Associational life in the United States you know you the public post office and people coming and going you have millions of clubs and Freemasonry and 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 uh, you know Rotary clubs and all of that you don't get fascism basically That and they and they say that's what Tocqueville said Tocqueville said the United States is all this associational life and it keeps despotism at bay uh, whereas uh, uh, Tocqueville didn't say that but on a rent sort of worked it around Europe uh, An American social scientist particularly picked this up. Europe did not have that, especially Italy and especially Germany. They didn't have a rich uh, social life. Uh, and the fascists, therefore, were able to polarize and then uh, eliminate. Now, that's just not so. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what it, the problem was rather the polarization of a... Very high levels of social life. That was much more the problem. Where you had clashes between socialist clubs and conservative clubs, and or in Italy, the uh, Catholic and socialist, or Catholic and anti-clerical and radical, or then fascists. So there was a very rich associational life, and there's a constant effort then on the part of the fascists to try to 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 uh, organize it you know, cut and divide it up, create their own institutions, regulate the other ones. Okay, so I'm kind of going forward. It's a bigger problem that I think historians have to deal with not to make fascism or totalitarianism into some special category that you can't deal with, with tried and true uh, methods, in other words, to extrapolate and say it's too extreme and therefore it's something different. Okay, we can come back to that. But I really do you know <laughs> stake my ground on trying to clarify a, a patch which is very muddied by concepts coming um, from political theory and the social sciences. Now that brings us back to some big problems. Italy is complicated. But then you could say hey what about Germany? My God hmm. Complicated. It's enormous diversity between Catholic Germany and Lutheran Germany, between Southern Catholic Germany and Rhineland Catholic Germany. Come on, it's all over the place. So, Italy, I don't, Germany is not probably no more complicated. And if you think of the Soviet Union, oh my goodness me, well, the Orthodox Church. So, what it was so, I could see so clearly is that if the church has always its own interests. And of course, it will. Support the tyrant. I mean, time and again, from Paul Tarsus I mean, from the very get go, church and state uh, had had peculiar synergies, in this, and you could say especially in Italy, the state is in many ways founded on the church. But the the, the the main the main point is, is the church kept had, if you give the church the right to control marriage, which the fascists did as part of this trade off, and. in uh, in order to be conservative to show that they're conservative the church yeah give it an inch it'll take a mile (laughs) and pretty soon it says oh yes we've got marriage well marriage what's for it's to create children to create the image of god and therefore uh, it's of course it's not just a sin but it's illegal to touch the human body no eugenics Okay, no being anti-Semitic. That's ridiculous. You can't be anti-Semitic. That you can't you can't make it so uh, you could unmarry a Jew. That's uh, the violating the sacrament of marriage, which is communion with God. You can't have abortion. You're breaking uh, the communion with God. And so, theologically as well as politically, the Church is taking a position uh, in in those years, which doesn't protect, we know, the Jews from being. Uh, persecuted and then annihilated Uh, but uh, it does mean that in the church court when push came to shove this is really after the war they weren't going to let a Jewish woman be divorced because she was Jewish on the grounds that she so-called didn't believe in marriage because she was Jewish that wasn't going to happen so it's a very I, I was very interested in Probing that, which is very hard, because transcripts are all of Church Latin. Because first fascists were so excited about being able to corrupt Church law. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, Whoa, we corrupted Italian law. We corrupted Roman law. We're you know going and uh, uh, corrupting international law, violating you know, <laughs> the League of Nations and violating the laws of uh, 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 international law. Now we're going to corrupt Church law and get. Get the church court to sign up and give this fascist, big fascist, his uh, his 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 annulment against a woman who's Jewish and Catholic, and on both grounds doesn't believe in marriage. Now, your my readers must, I mean, listeners must be saying, "Oh my God, where is this story going?" Well, mm-hmm. in some sense, it's like the heart of the matter. You know, how deep does a regime penetrate? In other words, a fascist regime, a Nazi regime. A, Uh, another kind of dictatorial regime, how far can it get inside of the society? And we say, look, people, people resist, families resist, Uh, there's lots of religious resistance and the church has its interests, sometimes collaborating and sometimes not collaborating or what the church does so well, postponing. <laughs> we were here for eternity. We'll just, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just postpone for a few years, <laughs> this trial and, you know, then we'll see what happens.
2: Yeah. I think that's a, a great answer to that, that convoluted question I asked you. Um, It did. Yeah. I, I wanted to get at the, the heart of how the answering, how deeply Mussolini's Italy fascist Italy, integrates itself into society and I think your story really complicates that Uh, it's not as uh, all consuming as as you may as someone who looking from the outside might think it is Um, we are coming up onto an hour so I want to ask you my final question about your book Um, I like to ask the authors to give us one or two things that you would like people listening and hopefully the people who will go and read your book um, that they'll take away from it that will stay with them
0: uh, I very much want uh, my readers to to understand what about societies brings them close to a regime whose interests are 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 not are not those of the people, even if it says so. The other point is how a measure of the regime is how it treats subaltern, the subaltern people. Now here it's women and the colonial peoples. I don't deal in this book with workers. And I spent a lot of time trying to give um, in a story, uh, give, n- make uh, not just the women, but, but also all the colonial people who are colonized by the fascist, the, 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 you know, the enormous wreckage caused by, the, um, the Nazi and fascist regime falls outside of the conventional Europe in the Eastern lands, the Jews of, in the Soviet unions and in the Soviet union and Eastern Europe, the, uh, the peoples of Eastern Europe, but both ditto for the fascists in, in, in East Africa and Ethiopia and Libya. And that is truly a part of the story. I was stunned. And this is again, a, probably a takeaway. If you look at the maps how many wars Italy was engaged in. It was always at war, practically, except maybe four years in Mussolini's you know, 20-plus 20, 20 years in, uh, in office. And keeping an eye on the enormous militarism of fascism is pretty key. And I think it's also key to understanding where we are today. We don't pay enough attention to the enormous mess, of the enormous danger, the enormous... Uh, corruption that our military, the U S military involvement over the past many, many years has, has wrought on American society and and on politics. So I think that the nature of the violence, which is personal against the weak. uh, And so militarized, that's terribly important to understand what uh, fascisms are.
2: Um, Well said, um, and I, before I let you go, um, I always like to conclude our interviews by asking: um, Now that this book is done, it's on the shelf. People can go buy it. <laughs> um, yes. And right now, please buy it, buy the e version. <laughs> don't go, don't go out. Um, what are you working on now? Hmm.
0: I want to go back to Italy and study more Italy closer up as part of the great Europe that emerged from the 1960s, you know, sort of the made in Italy as a, a benchmark of a certain kind of European civilization, which wanted to offer itself as a model to the world you know, down through the, you know, 2000 with you know the, the European Union. And that too is falling apart. So, you know, we, we've got sort of the Irresistible Empire, which is about the United States. And I think what I want to write about is irresistible europe uh, sort of rise and grave crisis in the last you know, 15 years and what, what what it all means so i that might might take too many decades to be manageable <laughs> some some part will do you know.
2: well if it ever if it ever shows up in in book form um i would love to have you back to the show to talk about it um,
0: yeah, well, that, that'll that make me do it more quickly. It <laughs> might be my normal work procedures and inclination. I'd, I'd look very much forward to that.
2: Well, great. Well, um, I want to uh, tell our listeners again, the title of the book is The Perfect Fascist, A Story of Love, Power, and Morality in Mussolini's, Mussolini's Italy. Um, it's by Dr. Victoria de Grazia. Um, it is available now. It just came out. Uh, It's very, very new. Um, I can't recommend the book enough. Um, I I definitely think um, you should go out and get it and read it. Um, There were lots of things in it that we didn't have time to talk about today, um, but could very easily done a whole nother episode uh, on this book. Um, So I want to thank um, Victoria again for being on the show and we will see you all next time.
0: Great. Thank you so much and good luck with your program.